Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim Polari here alone in this intro. This episode is a little bit different. We're going to play segments from three past episodes of ours that involve cases being worked on to some degree by private investigations for the missing. Of course, Private Investigations for the Missing is the nonprofit organization that we're on the board of that was founded by Bruce Maitland. And you can find out more at investigationsforthemissing.org and on their social media pages. There are links in the show notes. We're having a fundraiser, and it kicks off on Giving Tuesday, which is November 29th, 2022. And our fundraiser, we're trying to make a big push. It's going to go from November 29th all the way to the National Missing Persons Day on February 3rd, 2023. And we're trying to raise as much money as possible for private investigations for the missing. So you can donate via the website at investigationsforthemissing.org. You can also donate on PayPal. And we're doing a live fundraiser on Giving Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. That's November 29th, 2022. Lance and I are hosting this fantastic event. And the best place to watch this live is YouTube at youtube.com slash crawlspace. And there'll be a chat room going. And you can follow our social media pages at Missing CSM and at the Private Investigations for the Missing Pages for more information and links to donate and to watch the live event. We've got some very special guests who are going to hang out with us live. John Lorden of Brain Scratch will be joining us with Jason Watts, who is Brandon Lawson's friend and who helped lead the search party that reportedly likely found Brandon earlier this year. We're also going to be joined by Ellen Marsh of Obsessed with Disappeared, one of the biggest and best true crime comedy podcasts out there. She is hilarious as well as incredibly smart and empathetic towards all the cases that they cover. Cannot wait to speak with her. A couple of our private investigators will also be joining us as well as Bruce Maitland. And of course, Bruce Maitland is Brianna Maitland's father. Brianna Maitland was just 17 years old when she went missing from Montana. Montgomery, Vermont, on March 19th of 2004, and she is still missing. And if you have any information in any of the cases that we'll be discussing in this episode, or any case at all that PIs for the Missing is working on, you can contact Private Investigations for the Missing. You can contact our investigators by calling 1-866-331-6660 or email PIFTM, that stands for Private Investigations for the Missing, P-I-F-T-M tips at gmail.com. And that information is on the website as well. And of course, if you want to talk to law enforcement about any specific case, you can contact them directly. But if you'd like to talk to our investigators or potentially leave an anonymous tip, uh, you can do that by contacting private investigations for the missing. Okay, we're going to kick off this episode by playing a video that Crawlspace Media's Jennifer Amell put together, and it's got Bruce Maitland, and it displays why donating to private investigations for the missing is such a worthy cause. As this holiday season approaches, uh, for families of missing people, when their loved one goes missing, everything changes. It's been 15 years since my daughter Brianna went missing and not a holiday goes by that uh, uh, she's not on my mind. I mean, how I kind of deal with my daughter's disappearance, uh, I describe it as a room that I go into 
uh, with a lot of memories and it's it's difficult sometimes to deal with with those memories and I knew that starting an organization like this uh, that kind of stuff would have to come up so it took a while before I was uh, mentally ready to be able to do that. You have to make something good come out of all this. And the best way that I knew to make something good come out of Brianna being missing was to help other people. What people don't realize is that uh, just the costs of private investigators by the time you pay them for their expenses on the road, travel, motels, and then an hourly fee, which can range from 60 to $100. It, I mean, it would not be uncommon to have, a, to have a private investigator working for more than $1,500 a week. There's just so many of these cases don't get any coverage in the media, uh, you know, particularly uh, people of color, especially, they just, you know, they're, they're almost passed over. Uh, I'm sure all of you have seen, you know, different missing persons cases and they're, and usually upper middle class, uh, you know, white people that get highlighted and, and really, really young kids. That's why I started Private Investigations for the Missing, a nonprofit that pairs qualified investigators to help families find their missing loved ones. Private Investigations for the Missing is a solution to this problem that's out there, and it's a problem that not many people are really aware of but especially to you folks in the true crime genre, I mean, you, you watch these shows, you enjoy different shows. Um, it's very interesting, but behind every show, there's a hurting family out there and they need uh, more than just your interest. They, they need your help. So please go check us out on our website private investigations for the missing. Find out a little bit more about us. You know, look over the board members and see the quality of people that we have working and, and find out more on our mission. And please donate while you're there. There's a GoFundMe button right there and you can really be make a difference and help us out. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you because uh, we want you to be part of the mission and, and part of the community of other people that have seen this need that's out there and really want to help. There's a statement called overcoming evil with good and that's what I'm trying to do. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And this next clip that we're going to play is from the episode about the disappearance of Mike Montijo. And he's been missing since January 26th, 2020, out of Colleton County, South Carolina. And we have Mike's sister, Belinda, on this episode. And she's also going to join us for the live fundraiser. And in this episode, we're joined by Lou Barry, who is a former police chief detective. And he's a current private investigator working with us at Private Investigations for the Missing. He'll be joining us live as well as appearing in this next clip. He enlisted when he was 18, right out of high school. He wrestled in high school and he was trying to get a scholarship and he didn't get one. So, you know, um, we grew up in Kansas, not a lot of options in the middle of Kansas. So he, he joined the Navy. Yeah. He was a um, chief petty officer when he retired. So he was, he was in there for 20 years. How was he as a wrestler? He was pretty good. We're small. So he wrestled in in the lower weight classes. So yeah, he was pretty good. Lots of trophies and medals at my grandparents' house. <laughs> That's awesome. When we were looking into him, they list the statistics, and he was listed as 5'5", five, five, I think 100, about 165 pounds. So when you said he was a wrestler, I just pictured like, yeah, like a small, like yeah. stocky, like, <laughs> you know, tough to pin type wrestler. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I talked to him, and I talked to my dad, too, because he loved football. Kansas City Chiefs were his team. And so they would talk every Sunday. He told me that he had drinking problems and, you know, he couldn't kick the problem. And he had a, was going to go um, get some help at the VA. He used to always say he couldn't talk to anybody because, you know, his security clearance. I'm like, you can talk to a psychologist. They won't say anything. So when he's in the Navy, he was on those nuclear subs and he couldn't even tell us where he was going. You mentioned uh, he was a Kansas City Chiefs fan, uh, a big one. They were a week away from playing in the Super Bowl when he went missing. You are correct. There is no way he would have missed that game for the world. He even had a bedroom that was decorated in Kansas City cheese theme, his spare bedroom. So, yeah, no way. I was told that he was trying to quit drinking and that he started hallucinating and 
that's what he told his wife. And we don't know if he just wandered off. I mean, he left the house without his keys, his cell phone, you know, obviously his vehicle was there, his wallet, you know, and they lived out in the country. So he usually carried his handgun with him whenever he went out, just in case he ran across snakes or anything. And he didn't even, he didn't take his gun either. I mean, I don't even think he had his glasses. So I'm not really sure what happened. I, you know, I wasn't there and me, I relied on the family and the law enforcement thinking they would do the investigation correctly. But I don't know if he just wandered off and if the people down there just didn't care enough because of his drinking to try and find him, they were just glad he was gone or if something happened. I, I don't know. And now Belinda tells us why she contacted private investigations for the missing. To me, it was like not a very good investigation. And I had researched, looked up as soon as he went missing what to do. And one of the things it said was to hire a private investigator to help him. And so I asked a wife if we could hire a private investigator, you know, get a GoFundMe going. And she told me and she said it kind of rudely that I have the money to hire a private investigator, but I would rather drag the river instead. And there's an account of him being seen at a convenience store that morning. Is that accurate? No. Um, I think Lou has a report on that. Correct. Didn't they say they weren't even open that day, Lou? Yeah, he was last seen on the morning of the 26th, and it was reported to the Sheriff's Department on the 27th. Um, and they went to a place called Jellicoe's, which is a local bar slash convenience store fairly close by. And allegedly he had been there the night before, which would have been the night of the uh, 28th, around there somewhere. And, and anyways, to make a long story short, the our investigator that was assigned interviewed the owner and the employee, and uh, neither one said that they were even open the day that they were supposedly asked about him being there the night before. So it's it just doesn't seem that it's, there's a big discrepancy there. Believe that either they had the wrong time period entirely when they talked to the, or supposedly talked to the owners, but um, the owner and the employee both indicated that they had never been interviewed. We've pretty much discounted that sighting completely. Oh, okay. So no one saw him after his wife saw him when he left or went missing on January 26th. Not as Correct. far as that we know of. Okay. Correct. Yeah, she went to work at 6.30 in the morning and came back about 6.30 that night and he was gone. Had he ever wandered away before? No. Um, actually we had an advocate that asked, um, asked his wife that she said the furthest he had ever, um, wandered was like, you know, it wasn't very far because they had, uh, her parents had horses and cows and stuff. And they had like, you know, a little barn area and that's the furthest he had went, which wasn't far. It's just like on their land up the road a little bit, but actually just a driveway. There's a number of, um, red flags, if you will, that indicate to us, I think that Things may not be as they, they were initially reported. Uh, number one, given his alleged condition, when it was found that he was missing, a police report wasn't made until the next day. Now, given his medical condition, you would think immediately that would be the first thing you would do is notify the police, hey, he's missing. <laughs> uh, and he's suffering from potential alcohol withdrawal or whatever, uh, but that wasn't done for an entire day. Secondly, the security camera on the residence or the trailer was not working that particular day for some reason. Um, and there's a number of other red flags there that indicate that perhaps, you, you know, that require further investigation. Um, people that weren't interviewed 
that should have been interviewed. Just the fact that he left behind his wallet, his glasses, his keys, his chewing tobacco, um, to me, indicates it's not a voluntary disappearance. I mean, he's obviously not gone to put a new life together for himself. His, his veterans checks haven't, as far as we know, that a bank account hasn't been touched since he went missing by him. So, you know, it all adds up to something tragic most likely happened to Mike. So to classify this as solely as a missing person case, it doesn't do justice, I don't believe, to what potentially happened. A, a further, to, to, to make things a little bit cloudy, there's a bullet hole in the side of the trailer uh, that was covered with duct tape. Really? And w- when had that happened? Well, uh, we don't know. Uh, the explanation is in one of his deliriums, he thought was shooting at something in his bathroom that he believed he saw. We don't know. Belinda, are those hallucinations something you, um, you've you heard of before, you, you think is, is real? Yes. I mean, his wife called me when, um, like I said, the last time when he had seizures, he had them, was having them really bad. But, uh, you know, and he didn't deny it when I talked to him, you know, when he got out of the hospital. So I'm, I'm sure that's what happened. But, you know, like you said, why would somebody leave? They knew they got that bad. And, and you know, um, I realize living with somebody with like that has these can't be easy, you know, but if you don't make them get help, then you're just enabling them. But, you know, even though it's not easy, you don't just not look for somebody because you're tired, like, tired of dealing with their their issues. I'm curious about the um, the bullet hole in the trailer. And he said that he thought that he was. He knew he was hallucinating and he thought that he was shooting at something. Was the bullet hole like an exit hole or was it the other way? Like, was he shooting from the inside? That's what I was told. But somebody who saw the bullet hole said me, told me that it looked like it was from the outside going in. I don't know. I I didn't, you know, stupid me. I should have went to South Carolina, but I thought other, you know, I thought the people that were there would do make more of an effort to look for him. Hindsight's 2020. Anybody that's out of state and has a missing person, you think the other loved ones are going to look for them? Go do it yourself. I don't believe any forensic exam was done on this trailer. Nope. They did not even go inside that trailer, I don't think. Yeah, I think the reason I asked is because none of he didn't take any of his firearms, right? No, not that we're aware of. Right. So if he had been in a state where he was hallucinating if he was inside or outside and he thought that he was shooting at something, this wasn't the same type of hallucination because if, if he was previously hallucinating and felt he needed to shoot whatever he was hallucinating, this was different because he felt like he needed to just get away. Right. And that's what happened the last time. Um, he felt like he just needed to get away. So they had to load up in the car and leave and his wife took him to the hospital. They were so bad, but yeah, they had to load up the dogs and everything and leave is what happened. So that sounds like that was the case this time and probably pretty fast if he didn't take any of those items, including something that, oh, you had said that he would typically just carry his, I think he said his sidearm or his handgun just in case he saw a snake or something. Right. Yeah. If he was going to, because he had deer stands and stuff. So if he was going to go out to those or anything, you know. And uh, are you still in touch with his wife? No. I think she thinks I'm out to get her and point her as the the bad guy in this. And I, I'm really not. I just, I just um, feel like she didn't care enough. If I, she may have, I don't know. That's just, I mean, 
I'm the one who's been contacting everybody and me and my daughter were trying to find someone when he first went missing. And, you know, my dad and my sister, our sister, we're the ones who kept blowing up the sheriff's department. I mean, we were the ones pushing and I kind of feel like without her pushing the sheriff's department as well, they were just kind of um, pushing up, pushing us off to the side, you know, because she wasn't really looking. So she didn't seem to push in the same way that you and the rest of your family did. No. You know, they had game cameras, too, and all the game cameras had the SD cards pulled that day. Who who pulled those? Well, they just, they were, I guess they were her family's, April's parents' game cameras, and none of the cards were in them. Supposedly, that day, they'd taken them out. It's just too many questions and not enough answers for me. I just want to make sure I understand this. So the game cameras are cameras that are set up to capture deer and wild boar or any sort of um, animal that one would hunt? Yes, Recorded on like a little SD card? Yes, that's correct. No SD cards in those cameras the next morning? There were none in there that day, correct. And how many cameras? I'm not sure. I didn't, I don't know. They didn't give me that information. Okay, but sounds like a at least a couple. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they had them wherever the deer stands were too. I mean, right. so, and on the trails. How many deer stands are there? I, I know he had one. I don't know if there were others out there or not, so... Okay, and these are cameras that will typically run all the time? Um, I'm not sure if they run all the time or if they're motion activated, which mm-hmm. is what a lot of them are now. Usually they're motion motion activated, either for still pictures or, or video, depending on how modern they are and everything. Some can be monitored remotely, depends how sophisticated they are. But in any event, these sound like they had the SD cards and they were just not operable that day. Is there a hunting season or seasons? I'm sure there is. I mean, here in Texas, it's um, bow season usually starts in October and then I think gun season in November. So, you know, it's warmer in South Carolina, too. So there's is probably later in the year as well. I'm not I'm not sure. All states are different. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that these cameras are placed in an area where they've typically seen whatever game they're hunting or they know that this might be a path where the game goes through and is probably near the uh, deer stands, I would imagine. Probably. I'm, yeah, I would imagine. I'm, you know, I don't know how many they had up or you know, how many cameras they have on the property. So. And they had one in their own property as well? On the back door. I'm not sure if they had one on the front door, too. Um, I was just told about the one on the back door that was, um, I was told that it was old and it was not working that day. And it looks like he went out the back door, is what I was told. Do you know how soon before it had been working? No. If I had a nickel for every time a camera just didn't work on the day that somebody disappeared. You'd be rich, wouldn't you? (laughs) I mean, this month alone. So with all of this, Lou, what are the next steps? I mean, I think you said in the beginning, or not in the beginning, but you said earlier on that you've just kind of run out of knowing what to do. So what are the next steps? We've tried to generate interest from several different law enforcement agencies to get involved in the case and thus far have been uh, unsuccessful. But like I said, I think we've gone as far as as our private investigator can go. He's got a very complete and accurate report done, um, which again, I think is very convincing that this needs further investigation. Unfortunately, as far as I know right now is absolutely nothing being done officially on the case. Um, and that's, that's too bad, but um, we, we would like to just generate some interest and get someone with law enforcement authority to 
to look at this and, and, you know, question some people and conduct a more thorough investigation that's been, than it, than that has been done up until this point. And I think the families owed that. I mean, I mean, if it turns out, okay, he wandered off and he's out in the area somewhere, that's okay. That's, that's too bad. It's tragic that it happens. Um, but if someone is criminally responsible, then um, the family, I think, is owed some answers also. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And now we'll play a clip with two private investigators for PIs for the Missing named Ness and Andy Wyland. They're from Lakefront Investigations, and they are working on the disappearance of Phoenix Colden from East St. Louis in December of 2011. Not, I, w- I don't like to say it's slow going. Um, we're just very methodical, um, very detail oriented. So no stone goes unturned. Um, and, you know, we're just making headway as we can. Uh, we're at the point now, I think before we were looking at some of the known facts of the case, the things that had already been um, uh, uncovered. And now we're kind of looking more at the uh, what's going on in East St. Louis or what was going on at the time in East St. Louis, um, exploring some of the less savory parts of, of um, you know, the Internet and, and uh, things, things in that particular area where she disappeared, uh, events that were occurring. Um, and now we're at the point where we have a network. And I, I guess I should let you talk about that, the people that 
um, well, you want to talk real to? Real quick, before, sure. I, I definitely want to hear about that, but you said something at the top of your answer uh, that you're very methodical and detail-oriented, and after speaking with Goldia and knowing her uh, experience, the, the past experience she's had with investigators and people who have said that they're going to help, how do you communicate that to someone like Goldia and, and tell her um, it might not seem like things are going on, but we are trying to be as detail-oriented and methodical as possible and still maintain her, uh, her trust in her um, trust in you guys? How do you communicate that to her? Well, I think I, I, I do the bulk of the communicating with the Coldens, um, both telephonic and text and, and email and stuff. And we're, we're keeping in touch about every week, every other week. Um, sometimes things come up. Sometimes the, they, they've called on us to help them on some things not necessarily directly related to the case um, in, some, in some instances where they just need someone to help them understand a uh, you know something that had come up uh, that they were just struggling with that they didn't understand how you know how to look at it and and we've helped them through a couple of those things put them in touch with uh, with some law enforcement folks as well uh, for some things that have come up um, and I stay in touch with um, the lead detective on the case um, that's uh, detective uh, Tom Taylor out of the st. Louis County Police Department um, we've spoken on the phone. We've exchanged some emails, um, but he and and I will say too, he has not said that the case is cold. He also has not said that he's made any progress. So that's not a, an attack on him or anything or a negative against him. It's just a, a policeman is only going to share as much as they can share with a private investigator who they also don't even know. You know, so I, I, I a lot of gratitude for Tom just taking the time to even you know entertain some of my contacts with him. I also have been speaking with some family members. Uh, of the uh, the Coldens, and we are looking at trying to meet up against. We have not yet met up with them in person. I think the last time we spoke, we were talking about meeting up. Uh, COVID being what COVID was, and and scheduling being what scheduling was. I think we're getting closer, and um, and so I think in the next um, couple months, I'll be taking a trip at least, if not both of us, to St. Louis and uh, getting some feet on the ground kind of stuff going on. But that is what helps us get back to Goldia and Lawrence and that constant engagement with them. They, they, I don't know, honestly, Vanessa, I don't know if, I don't know how confident Goldia is that we're going to be able to, to help them in, in this case. However, I think they value the help that we are trying to give them and, um, and I'm looking. I'm still looking to move forward with them on those things, on, on very specific things that that, uh, that are pertinent to the case itself. Vanessa. Yeah, I, I just um, they knew from the very beginning that my um, my participation was definitely going to be in the background, and sometimes I'm going to find things that are not pleasant, um, and maybe just not that it doesn't need to be shared, but it could do nothing but cause heartache and it, you know, things that may not even be true. So, um, I don't do any of the communication. They just, um, have the trust that, you know, I'm somewhere in the background and Andy's going to communicate what he can and what he will. Um, I, I will say though that, you know, he's always been kind of the person, you know, the persona person, um, in, out of the two of us and, you know, Christmas cards and, and birthdays and anniversary, things like that aren't forgotten by him. And so, um, you know, I just can't do 
I, I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. <laughs> this is how the dynamic works, where you're the front-facing um, representative of the of the investigative team, and you do the interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you do like the background stuff. Like, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. explain that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. When I, I, that's interesting because I don't think a lot of people appreciate that part of it. So my background has uh, been doing um, military intelligence, and so I think when we talked before, that kind of the the things that I was able to do and able to learn, um, I'm trying to bring that you know forward um, by looking for missing people, specifically with open source intelligence. And so that, um, you know, a, a lot of times OSINT is for things like everybody knows Bellingcat and, you know, they, they saw the downed airplane and things like that. Bellingcat is an organization. Um, they basically do uh, publicly, they take publicly available information, they crowdsource it um, to answer questions that we would normally think of as intelligence questions. So if there's a, uh, for instance, um, the MH17, the plane crash, right? Uh, so they were the ones that did all of the geos, the um, uh, background information to kind of point to who they believed and who they proved eventually was responsible for for the crash, right? Um, so other things that they might do is um, for a uh, ch- uh, child pornography ring or something along those lines. Um, they would take information that people just, Joe Schmo out there, you know, they would grab uh, all kinds of information, put it together in a package and then expose or or you know, communicate with other intelligence agencies. What? Well, actually, they don't do that, but um, they they would just communicate with um, law enforcement or something, um, people who are responsible for doing bad things out there. Um, and, and the big thing that they do is the crowdsourcing portion of it, you know, taking people all working on a big problem and putting that together to solve the problem. Are those civilians or are those... All civilians. Those are civilians. In fact, they tend not to work with uh, government agencies. And the Coltons have kind of been through the ringer in this case as far as um, comments like that go and as far as being approached by folks who are not trying to help their case. Yeah, they have. They've been on both sides of that. Some some of the PIs that were out for themselves maybe, right, as we've heard from them. And then also there is a real a real threat to, I'll call it a threat, but it is. It's a real threat to families of missing persons when they put their, their stuff out their, yeah, personal looking, their personal information. Yeah. Their personal information. Their their personal information. Their real contact information. You know, seeking to broaden their their help base. And then you've got, um, uh, you know, non-state actors who you know maybe you know um, illegal like criminal organizations who might use that information to try to gain money from the families from the you know to victimize them to to solicit money coming up to them and saying you know calling them and saying things such as um your daughter has been in a car accident and is here with us right now i'm a police officer um and then you know there's it's it's a it's a tragic thing that these families go through but there are tools available to them to help them um to include the FBI's um, cyber crimes uh, reporting website, and forgive me, I, I don't know the, I don't know the link to that website right there off the bat, but um, you know, I've had to do one of those There's, for this case already. Yeah, there are. I mean, that's a common that's a common scam. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not people are missing or or just you know like a 
I'm sure you guys have heard the thing where somebody calls grandma, you know, it's an older lady and they're like, oh, your grandson was in a car accident. We have him here. Your contact information was in his glove box. Um, you know, we, we have this bill, this hospital bill to pay or just whatever the case may be. Um, those kinds of things happen. And then when you put on top, like people are putting um, the Colden's name out, you know, Phoenix's name is out there. Um, they have their contact information. I think it it's um, an attractive target for certain people that, that you know, try to get over. So Has that actually happened yeah. to um, to the Colden's? Yes. Where people, yeah. so that, that wasn't just like a hypothetical. No. Like people have called them and said that Phoenix was with them and had I, been in an accident. Yeah, That's we've, incredible. We've helped them through um, through that Mm-hmm. A couple times, um, yeah. and so in the process, and they've had that happen before us yes, as well. They that, had. that was well a well publicized one uh, that scam. But significantly, what I what I observed is that it the fact that they have had this happen to them before didn't change the impact that it had on them when they called me asking for help. Is this real? Is this something that we should be? You know, should we? How do we report this? Do we do we call the FBI? Do we do this? And so. That's kind of the th- one of the things that we do to help them out to navigate that. And don't bother them filling out reports. Give me the information. We'll fill out the report for you and we'll get it submitted to the police and the FBI. That's great. That's Is there anything else on this topic that we can speak about on the air that could help families? Yeah, I, I think so. at least for the um, the attempted scams that go out, right? Um, there are things that people can do. They can pay attention to... Um, the inflection of the voice of the person calling. Sometimes it sounds very realistic, very realistic. Uh, We do know that this scam often originates in um, Central and South America, that you'll hear a, uh, you potentially will hear a Hispanic accent over time. They might put a, a person on the phone who says they claims to be the family member, and they may sound very convincing. But that's because they've done their research and they've scrubbed the internet and that's a low-hanging fruit for an organization like that. Uh, so things that they want to look for, uh, uh, they want to, they want to. First of all, let's do this in steps. Stay calm. Stay calm, and immediately ask to speak with the loved one, the missing loved one. Immediately ask to speak with them. Ask how they're doing, and then ask for a, a location where they are. Start getting as many specifics as you can. And, and as long as they keep talking and staying on the phone, just keep them on there, but stay calm. Don't panic. Don't, um, don't start yelling at them and engage at them or try to threaten them if they change their story. If it, if it changes and it becomes quickly noticeable that this is a, is a scam, if you know it's a scam, if you know you're being scammed and they ask you for money, remember the police will never ask you for money to get your loved one out of trouble. The FBI will never ask you for money to get your loved one out of trouble. Don't fall victim to that. And if they are a organization that you think might have access to your loved one and you feel that the, the threat and the, the, um, the demands for, let's say, money are that important um, or that realistic, you need to be prepared to take it to the FBI. Now, the interesting thing we found is the uh, phone calls that are common, they'll, they'll drop off after maybe the first 30 to 40 seconds. They'll just drop. Then they'll call back about a minute or two later. And they'll they'll say they'll demand to you know hey you need to you need to help fix this situation, and they may call back a third time, changing their story altogether, saying 
we are a serious crime organization, right? A, a legitimate, a le- legitimate crime organization, if it's such a thing. We are a real crime organization. We have the ability to hurt your daughter if you don't give us money, to hurt your loved one if you don't give us money now. And if you're a parent who's mm-hmm. grieving or worried, it's going to be nobody would just say, okay, well, you know, obviously this is a scam, right? Your tensions are high, your emotions are high. Um, and that means that your memory is, mm-hmm. is, is diminished or degraded. So make sure once you hang up, you take notes of your impressions, your thoughts, your ideas, anything that can come, that has come up during the call. Um, any, any little, the littlest thing could, could really mean, um, uh, that we would be able to eliminate or, or, really chase down um, these things. Uh, I'd also say, I guess, with that, um, just, I guess, also reiterating, you know, the, the stay calm part, um, but even if they don't ask for money, they're asking for your time, they're asking for your energy, and, and so just remember that you're, you're spending something, you're expending something on each one of those. So we tend to ask families to have a separate um, line, maybe not necessarily a personal line, something that uh, they give to their PIs or that they give to a friend or somebody that's close to the family that may be able to sort of be a little bit of a filter no um, between yeah buffer so then if they do have your personal phone um that would that would be questionable too i guess right right i think one of the things that um i it still bothers me and i i don't want to imply that phoenix was involved in anything nefarious but the area again that her car was left in at that time um being able to look at archives for forums Mm -hmm. and things like that that was st Clair avenue East St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a high crime, but a very high um, uh, area, I I guess, known for prostitution. And um, again, this is one of those things where I don't want to talk bad about police. But uh, at that time, um, the people who would seek out prostitutes, um, often they would do their business and the police would confront them and say, on about your way, and they would arrest in my opinion, who is really the victim in this case, right? The the prostitute, uh, often underage minors, things like that. Um, so I, I think that we we have kind of this weird, uh, I, I guess this this weird confluence of events at that particular time in that particular area that she may have been caught up in something, not just she happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time with some people, some people that were very, very bad. Um, and so I, I would like to kind of, um, we're, we're exploring that a little bit more, exploring some of the people that uh, tend to post on the forums about mm-hmm. things that they, they like to do, like to do to women specifically. Um, so just these kind are of going forums back. that are not your, these are not your average form. You got to dig for these forums. Yeah. You got to dig through, yep. you got to dig through for these people. Um, you have to kind of prove yourself, and which is not your... something I'm necessarily willing to do in this case. What do you mean? Prove yourself. Like you infiltrate the group and 
I would not. But what my purpose at this point is to collect as much evidence as I can without becoming a member of any of this and present that as a these are the circumstances. These are the people that were in this area, around this area um, that maybe could be looked at. And then people who are much more savvy than me at, at this kind of stuff, they would look at it instead. Is this dark web research that you uh, get yes, into? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and actually, the location where the where Phoenix's car was towed from, mm-hmm. ultimately, right? That location. It now the buildings. There were two buildings there. Those are now gone. They were raised uh, probably three years ago, 2018. Right after. Right after. Um, right after Oxygen Network did their um, special on Phoenix. About two, three months after that, the because uh, you saw now Chief of Police, Chief Perry, who was the investigating officer, the responding officer that night, uh, December 18, 2011, that, that, that evening, who we've talked about. But he was out there in that video, the, the Oxygen Network special, and you could see the buildings in the background. And then, and then we went back and Google, uh, Google Earth, uh, went back in time, and those those were gone in 2018. Right, about two months after, they were just totally gone. They they dug up the backyard of it, uh, piled everything up in the back. Do you feel comfortable talking about what you learned about the location on on uh, Saint Clair? Sure, um, that it was it was a gentleman's club. Um, people referred to it more so as a hotel. Um, so that that was definitely one of the things that we were looking at. I'm not a I'm not a geospatial expert by any means, but there did seem to be disturbances in the backyard mm-hmm. um, that we saw from you know looking from a couple of days to another, looking from years to another. Um, just we have some gaps in in our mapping software, or mm-hmm. I guess we have some gaps um, that on certain dates, so we can't necessarily say for sure what we think is going on um but there definitely was i mean that's that was a hot spot of activity um and now that the buildings are gone and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors listen to the 48 hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, 
Stay safe out there. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And this last clip we'll play is about the disappearance of Tabitha Queen from Bastrop, Louisiana. Jennifer Amell put this episode together and spoke with Tabitha's mom, Mary. Tabitha has been missing from Bastrop, Louisiana since May 9th, 2021. And was there some debate over the actual date of her disappearance? There is some debate. We will get into why that might be a bit confusing as we go on. Tabitha was born on April 21st, 1992. She was about 29 years old when she went missing. She's about 5'4 and somewhere between 200 and 230 pounds. She's a black woman. She has black hair and brown eyes. And she has a scar on her left arm. And she has the following tattoos. The word legend on her chest, stars on one arm, a marijuana leaf on her left buttock, and another tattoo somewhere on her body of masks and the words laugh now, cry later. And her ears are pierced. She's classified as endangered and missing. She was wearing a jacket with cartoon characters and pink pants. And Tabitha grew up in Mississippi along with her mother, Mary, who you spoke with, Jen. Uh, she is a described as a lively, family-oriented person who is devoted to her three children, not a timid person, and held a lot of opinions which she would readily share. And you spoke about this with Mary. Okay, my name is Mary Queen Lumsford. I am Capital Queen's mother. She was a wonderful child. You know, she loved her family. She loved it. She definitely loved her kids. Uh, she loved her mom. She loved her grandma. She loved her whole family. She was a, a outgoing. She speaks what's on her mind. She don't hold nothing back. She was a wonderful child. She liked to go, you know, her and the kids, they traveled out. She was staying in Baxter. I was staying in San Antonio, me and my dad. She stayed up there a month with us, and she said she'll be back. She said, I'll be back next month. Never showed up. It's a little small community town. Uh, a lot of people that came up missing in that town, came up there in that town, they don't know who did it. Uh, they parking these people cars in wooded areas just like they did my daughter, leaving their IDs behind. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot going on in that town. They need to be straightened, I know that. Uh, people come from out of town and don't make it back to their town. It's, it's a mess. When they go to that little town, everybody gets sick. They be like, well, they don't want to stay there five minutes. They be ready to go. I want to get up out of here. It's, it's woody, woody, woody. I ain't never seen no woods like that a day in my life. It's woody, woody, woody. It's, it's, it's an easy way to hide a body. I, I can tell you this shit ain't going to find it. If you got out of town, nice and late, don't go there. You might end up missing. It's, it's a lot of drugs, drugs there. 
it's, it's a lot of uh, killing there, and there's a lot of disappearance in there. There's something definitely going on in that town. According to Mary, she last spoke with Tabitha on Mother's Day of 2021, which fell on May 9th, a Sunday. Based on what Mary heard over the phone, Tabitha was in her car in the company of two or more men, all of whom have not been identified. She was in the midst of an argument, but Mary couldn't tell what the argument was about. The car that Tabitha drove was a white Hyundai four-door sedan. The day she disappeared, she called me on Mother's Day. She said, hey, Mom. I said, hey, how you doing? Uh, she said, I'm doing all right. She said, I said, what you doing for Mother's Day? I said, happy Mother's Day. She said, happy Mother's Day. I said, what you doing for Mother's Day? She said, uh, nothing. She said, Mom, I got to go. I said, go where you just called me. And she was like, Mom, I got to go. And there was two men in the background. I asked her. I said, who are those men you talking to? She said, uh, Mom, I got to go. She said, I'll call you back. So I didn't feel easy to it because the men, they was like, they was arguing with her or something. So I kept calling her phone, kept calling her phone. She never would answer. Kept calling her phone for like four, five hours. She finally picked up again. She was like, Mom, I told you I got to go. And she hung up the phone. I kept calling her phone. I kept calling. I kept calling. I told my sister, I said, something ain't right here. I said, we need to leave now. We need to pack some bags to leave. I said, something's going on. So I called Mary again and actually spoke to Tabitha's 11-year-old daughter, and she remembers that her mother disappeared on Mother's Day, a day earlier than what's reported on NamUs and in these news reports. So, I mean, keep in mind this is coming from a young girl, but she was there, and I trust um, that she remembers correctly. And also it's supported by that video surveillance footage that we'll talk about. So, Jen, what you're saying is that Mary and Tabitha's daughter are saying that Tabitha went missing on Mother's Day, which is May 9th, but yet the media has reported Tabitha's disappearance is May 10th? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so according to Tabitha's eldest daughter, Tabitha went to the grocery store around 11 a.m. on Mother's Day, which was May 9th. Tabitha left her three children at home Uh, to go to this grocery store just down the road. It was called Save You More, spelled S-A-V-U-M-O-R. And this is just a short drive from her home on Montgomery Avenue. And while at the grocery store, Tabitha was caught on video surveillance, and this is the last confirmed sighting of her. And much later in the investigation, they had discovered additional video surveillance footage that was dated May 10th at 9 a.m. And this was discovered near Dotson Park, and it depicted an unidentified black male parking Tabitha's car between abandoned buildings and walking away eastbound, carrying some object in his hand. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, not much more. We can post a link to the video. There was a great YouTube video by a handle named Gray Hughes Investigates who kind of enhanced this surveillance footage and cut it together and zoomed in a bit so we can see what's going on. So basically a car pulls into frame. There's two cameras that we're cutting between, but the car pulls into frame um, from the West side and parks between what looks to be like unused, potentially abandoned like sheds or garages. Like it's kind of industrial looking 
And he pulls into this like grassy area between the buildings as if he was just like trying to put the car someplace where you wouldn't really look at it too closely. It's kind of like off the beaten path a bit. And um, the driver's side door opens and this black male steps out of the car. Judging from like the general size of a sedan, it, he looks to be like a foot and a half taller than the car. What would you say that would put him at? Like maybe five nine? Yeah, somewhere in there. He seems pretty slim as well. Yeah, yeah. And he's wearing a a light shirt. It's uh, potentially white, but it's kind of difficult to tell because it's grainy. And um, dark colored shorts or pants. And then he walks away eastbound down the road to where the intersection is. And just as as he is about to turn right on this road, he drops whatever he's holding in his hand, stoops down to pick it up, and then continues out of frame. So that's all we know. Um, this person has not been identified to my knowledge. Um, and I know that the police were trying to put this video out. That's why it's public. That's why we can watch it in hopes that somebody from the community would recognize this person. Yeah, a couple of things on this. The first one, real quick, it does not look like this individual is trying to hide the car permanently. It is not covered by trees. It's not like this person drove it down a dirt road or, uh, you know, like a farm road and then tucked it off into the woods. It will be discovered. That's, I think, the person understands that the car will be discovered, but the person doesn't care. The other thing that uh, I wanted to put out there is Gray Hughes. We know him. He's a fantastic guy. If he's putting something out there like this, he's done a great deal of work on it. He's He is one of the most meticulous people in this community that we know, especially when it comes to uh, the video work that he can enhance and broadcast in a way where it's easy for you to get. Like He tilts the video in this. He makes sure that you're looking at it straight, enhances it the, the best of his ability, and he is so methodical. And so thorough. And so big thanks to him for this uh, and being able to just watch it publicly and doing your own research on it and making your own conclusions. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I do want to say one more thing about uh, Gray Hughes is that I actually didn't find this video on my own. It was Mary herself who had gone on to the Internet and said, this is the best video of that surveillance footage out there. Like this guy did a great job. And she said she was super thankful to him. And if you are listening to this and you are from Bastrop or the surrounding area, I really encourage you to watch this video and see if you can identify this man. Also sharing on social media really helps. And on May 11th or 12th, after not being able to get a hold of Tabitha, her family went to her home on Montgomery Ave and discovered that her three children have been home alone for three days. And when I got there, her house was coming up. The kids were there for three days by themselves. No food, no nothing. That's when she went to the grocery store to get. She had just got some money, a back pay or something from Social Security, now from unemployment or something. I think it was $9,000. None of that money. No card, no nothing. And then my granddaughter... My oldest granddaughter, now they were saying, and her friend said she had a 45. The gun went in the house. The gun went in the vehicles. So we don't know what's going on, what happened. But the whole town 
is telling me my daughter's dead. Tabitha's eldest daughter describes the following. The day before Mother's Day on May 8th, a man gets into an argument with Tabitha about borrowing her car. From what her daughter can overhear, after the first time Tabitha lent her car to this individual, she said the car had a strange odor near where the spare tire is kept in the trunk. And upon opening her trunk, she discovered blood. Thinking perhaps that her car was used in a crime, Tabitha did not want to lend her car again. Later the same day, a van pulled up to the house and men attempted to kidnap Tabitha. That's a crazy story, and that definitely gives motive. If Tabitha knew that a crime had been committed or was suspicious that a crime had been committed or had evidence that a crime had been committed, that gives like all the motive in the world for somebody to uh, take care of her in some way. And again, this information is coming from Tabitha's daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, which is just an awful thing for a child to have witnessed. I'm a little confused about her story about these men coming to abduct Tabitha. I just wasn't clear if the men had come that day, the day before Mother's Day on the 8th, to attempt to kidnap her, or if this happened later on, on the 10th, that they arrived at her house and succeeded in kidnapping her. It's kind of difficult to tell. So is there an officer assigned to Tabitha's case? And what does Mary think about uh, the investigation? Yeah, so after those three days elapsed that Tabitha had not been in any contact with her family, um, her family did go on over to check on her and the kids and discovered that the kids were alone. And they knew something bad had happened to Tabitha. So this is when Mary actually reports Tabitha missing And if you have any information, please call the Bastrop Police Department at 318-281-1322. And there's also the Louisiana State Police Department, Troop F. You can call them at 866-292-8320. And of course, you can always reach out to Private Investigations for the Missing at 866-331-6660. Or email us at piftmtips at gmail.com. And keep in mind, you can give tips anonymously. But uh, every time I dream about it, I, I stay in the whole dream and then I wake up. And I call my mama and say, I tell my mama what, you know, what I what, what had just happened to uh, my dream. No, it upsets me because She's trying to tell me where she's at, and I, I, I don't know where she's at, and I'm, I've, I've been still trying to find her. And my oldest daughter, she's pregnant. She's in the name of the baby, Tabitha. She's been started coming to her, too. She um, The last dream she had of her, she said they was taking pictures. She said she took another picture of my daughter in her dream, and she said it was a bullet in the side on her right side of her ear. She was shot in the head, and she said a bullet was sticking out. She said she asked her, what happened here? And she said that's when she woke up. Yeah, we know she gone. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit investigationsforthemissing.org to donate.